Welcome back to the Caught Red Podcast. Thank you guys very much for joining us for another episode this week. I am Megan Light. I'm Jesse Light. We are just two dog lovers here to talk about some true crime, all things horror, and then obviously our dogs too. On occasion, we do mention our cats, like I was going to talk about how there was almost a murder in our house. Dude. Finnegan, bless her heart. The, Screaming the t- bloody murder. The two boy cats will team up on her. And she sounded horrifying this morning. Holy shit. Shrieking for a good like 10 seconds yes. straight. Yes. And you'd think that she would love you more now because you kind of rescued her. You were like, hey, stop. <laughs> but she she doesn't really. Nobody look. listens to me. No. No, not not even me half the time. Thanks. You're welcome. And I don't know what it is about Finnegan not liking you for some reason. Because she's like the most feral out of all three, even though she's, you know, living in a house for, what, three years now? I think she's about... No, she might be four. Three uh, or four. I don't remember how old she is. But, I mean, we found her in a bush, so... Well, she was a kitten for sure. Yeah, she's like six she weeks when we found her. Yeah, I'll never forget that day. Walking Derby down the street and called Jesse. And I was like, have you left the house yet? No. Well, are you dressed? Why? And I was like, I need you to come get Derby. I found a kitten in a bush. And he was like, oh, shit. I knew what it was right away. No, you didn't. Yeah, no, you, you had you didn't. that voice like I just found a new critter. It's time to take it in. <laughs> I love her. She's a, she's an odd one, that's for sure. Like when she just looks at you and darts, you're like, girl, chill the fuck out. You -hmm. live here with us, all of us. Nothing new here. No crazy dog news this week. We just been monitoring Derby. She had a skin tag removed and she has stitches and wasn't really worried about her licking him, but... The, uh, the other dogs. Falco in particular. <laughs> yes. She's about healed up. And then we have one more week of watching her to make sure she doesn't have a seizure from her prevention. It's like it never happened. She's Right. You would have never known anything was wrong with her. And uh, all you doggo lovers out there, like we use Simparica Trio for all of our monthly prevention for all of the dogs. And they've been on it a couple years now. But that one, and then there are some other monthly preventions that have certain ingredients that are potentially seizure-causing. Does it say it on the box or like a warning? I think so. Yeah. I think it does. And But, I mean, Aussies are just prone to them in general, I've learned over the years. And the one that Derby had a few weeks ago was three weeks after giving prevention. So our vet doesn't think that caused it, but she was like, watch her for two weeks after her having the prevention this month, and then we'll take it from there. So, well, it's not as nearly as bad as that video I showed you oh my this God. morning. That made me want to cry. Yeah, this blue healer got into the compost, and whatever was in that compost caused him to have a seizure. It was a bad seizure too. And yeah, because he was in the hospital for two or three days, and it's oof. still looking like he's like barely walking around and getting by. But, oof, nightmares. Well, hers was definitely more neurological because of the heat stroke a couple years ago. Well, I say a couple, but it was like six years ago now. So she's definitely more prone to having them on occasion. 
just because of that. But that blue healer, he, he probably ate onion and something, whatever else was in there, which dogs aren't allowed to have anyway. So I'm sure his was just through ingestion like that. But that was not the best way to start the day. Well, anytime I see a sad video of a dog, I've got to show it to Megan because it's just fair that way. That's If you suffer, I suffer. That was in our vows, yeah. <laughs> I might have to go back and look at that. I don't remember that one. <laughs> Was that the fine print at the bottom? Yeah. Well, if y'all saw Jesse's meme that he made with Ripley, I, I God, it was <laughs> that is the most accurate thing ever because we are finally through all of our friends having their babies. Everyone's had their first round of kids now, so it's just I guess it's time for us to get another dog. I guess <laughs> I don't know. We gotta balance it out in the world. I do have some book recommendations. I read The Housemaid and The Housemaid's Secret by Frida McFadden. And everybody in my book group was raving about this and it had great reviews. And I was like, surely it's not that good. And then I read them and I was like, holy shit, they are that good. So if y'all are looking for any good thrillers with lots of twists and turns and you think one thing about the book and then you keep reading it and you're like, holy shit, where did that come from? You need to read those. I read I read the first one. I did part of it at work. I read like two or three chapters at work. And then on break, I read probably like three-fourths of the way. And then I finished it Saturday night. And then I read the second book Saturday night also. So I literally knocked out those two books like in a day and a half. It, they were really good. They read, they, I read them really fast, obviously. but You were locked in. Dude. And you would just like giggle every now and again. <laughs> and I thought she was laughing at the TV, but no. No, but they were very good. So if anybody wants to read The Housemaid and The Housemaid's Secrets, I would highly recommend them. And then we didn't really watch too much this week. We watched Deadline, which was one of Brittany Murphy's last movies. And that was a doozy. Did you pay attention? Not kinda? as much as you. I was kind of in and out of it. Well, I'm still, like, trying to figure it out. It's one of those that, like, you think you know what's going on, and then something happens, and you're like, what? what? Kind of a mind fuck, or no? Yeah. <laughs> like, like all horror movies, she is a, uh, she's a writer, she's a screenwriter, and she's in this house all by herself, and she's trying to finish this manuscript for a movie, and... She sees the spirits, and then she finds these videotapes, but then her book is about what she's seeing. But is she really writing the book, and these things are coming to life, or is she being possessed by the victim? I don't know. It was a lot of things in one, but it made me very sad to see Brittany Murphy in it because she is one of those that went way too soon. Which is a whole nother story. Literally. We could do a case on that. Just saying. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. wink. <laughs> Then we watched Murder by Numbers yesterday. Well, what an Easter movie that was. And that has Sandra Bullock and Ryan Gosling, and I really like that one. And I'm just really curious how many people out there on Saturday got my reference for Happy Rex Manning Day. If you did, let I us know. I saw a few Instagram stories if you know, of you Rex know. Manning, yeah. I hope you guys are ready for Jesse and his case this week. Are you ready? As ready as I can be. Well, let's fucking go. Bear with me. I've kind of got a sore throat, but we're going to get through this. Dude's been eating a package of cough drops. <laughs> it's working, though. 
I got you a new packet downstairs. Oh, thank you. Target. Of course, she had to go to Target. Listen, they have our sheets. Anyways, my back at it. My sources today are law.justia.com, nancyconstory.com, courtlistener.com, casetext.com, and caselaw.com. The case I have for you today was actually a listener recommendation, so shout out to Christy Nicole for this case. She actually told me that her father was accidentally mistaken as the suspect when the police were trying to find him and arrest him, so that's crazy. Jesus. I couldn't, for the life of me, find a picture of the suspect around the time like the crime mm-hmm. happened, so the only one I found was he was quite aged, but... She showed me a picture of her dad, and they do look pretty similar. I mean, they've got got the same stash going on there, so I could see how the police might have mistaken him for that guy. It's always the mustache. (laughs) This case involves one psychopath that set out to finish a job that he started. It involves a woman who is tough as nails, who goes through hell and back, yet is still able to make something of herself. And finally, this case involves the justice system, which you could say has failed victims over and over again. Instead of just doing what they know is right, they have to go by the book, you know, the fine print, all the laws that it's just ridiculous, which in certain areas needs to be rewritten. And in some cases on the spot, like in this one, I mean, my gosh. Yeah, you bitched about it a little bit earlier. Yeah. Now, there's actually a Lifetime movie made about this case. It is called Fight for Justice, The Nancy Kahn Story. I watched it on YouTube. Terrible quality, probably because it's on YouTube and it's from 1995. But Hell yeah. it was a pretty decent true crime movie for a, a Lifetime movie, I, I guess you could say. I guess you haven't watched a lot of Lifetime movies. Me? And- no. They changed quite a bit throughout, but a lot of it was accurate. Like, they changed one of the victims' names, and they didn't use the same years as in real life for some unknown reason. So I was getting confused when I was doing my research. I'm like, wait, this happened in the 70s, not the 80s. And I only really came across a couple newspaper articles, and then there was a shit ton of case law to go through that just drove me nuts, because that is... Over your head? Yeah. So, here we go. All right. Nancy Kahn was born October 3rd, 1939 in Birmingham, Alabama. She was a widow to a man named Jimmy Kahn. They had two children together, Gary and Lisa. In the Nancy Kahn movie, she lived with her parents as well, or at least they were around a lot due to the circumstances. I'm not sure if she actually lived with them in real life. Her father's name was Elton and her mother's name was Mary. And she was dating a man named Fred in the movie, and I'm not sure if that was supposed to be this man named James McCreary in real life or not, so it's just one of those things. I couldn't find much about her, but... On September 4th, 1971, 31-year-old Nancy and her cousin Charlotte Parks went out on the town together in Birmingham, Alabama. Her parents stayed home with her kids, who I believe were 11 and 6 at the time. In the movie, they went to this place called Istria. It's like a restaurant there, but I looked it up, and 
it doesn't exist. It was so fake for it the movie. It was probably fake for the movie. But she went to a bar or a restaurant. That's what we know. And they were last spotted in the parking lot around 11.30 p.m. Okay. And this is around the time when a man approached them in their vehicle in the parking lot. He got Nancy to roll down the window and was asking them what time it was. And, yeah, Megan's just shaking her head like, no, don't don't ever roll your window down for somebody like that. But they did. And as Charlotte was, like, distracted, she was looking at her watch to see what the time was. The man pulls a knife out on Nancy. Shit. Sticks it to her throat and orders them both out of the vehicle and into his car. And it was just crazy how no one around saw this go down. Like, they saw the women go to their car, but... After that, they didn't see the man. I think he was, he must have been just paying close attention to people around him. Well, I, that is almost like nowadays when people are looking down at their phones or whatever, or walking to their car, looking at their phones or doing something. It's like anybody could be like that man and just walk up and. Yeah, just not aware of your surroundings. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. On your headphone. Like, a, yeah, a lot of people. Well, he had Charlotte in the front seat the passenger seat of his car, and then Nancy was in the back while he drove, but he still had the knife to Nancy's neck, so he just had her sitting up. Oh, okay. I was like, how does that work? Well, yeah, right. With two of them, you'd think they'd be able to, like, fight back, but if he's constantly got a knife to one of them's neck, I mean, they're not going to want... He's ballsy to try to take two girls at once. yeah. So he took them to a secluded area near Hayden, and that's in western Blunt County. This is roughly 50 miles from Birmingham, just north. And this is where he would torture and rape both women. Right. Megan's looking at me again like, what the fuck? What the fuck? There's two of them. Right. You would think that two verse one, they'd be able to fight him off or something. Kick him in the dick. Yeah, What are you doing? Okay, sorry. Go on. And at this point, it was already pretty late. Nancy's parents were obviously worried. They should have been home by now. So Nancy's father called the police to notify them that they didn't come home. It was not like them to not come home at a decent hour. Something must have happened. Was there like a reported car accident in the area? And he called around to all the bars and restaurants as well just to see, you know, if they had seen her, but no. Well, this man pretty much told Nancy and Charlotte that they had to die that night. His first attempt at killing them was to first put them both in the trunk of the car, and then he ran a hose from his tailpipe to a hole that he made under the trunk of the car, and so he was attempting to asphyxiate them, by revving his engine mm-hmm. and, I guess, filling the trunk with carbon monoxide. Mm-hmm. But that plan fell through when they, I mean, the women just pushed the hose out of the hole multiple times. I mean, like, oh my gosh. I don't know I don't know what he expected there just for them to let it happen, I guess. But that obviously didn't work. And when that didn't work, the man opened the trunk, pulled them out. He stabbed Charlotte multiple times with a knife, and he stabbed Nancy in the chest twice. And he also held Nancy's head under water, so I assume there was a body of water nearby. And then he pushed the bodies down a large embankment where he left them to die. 
Now, what he didn't know was that Nancy survived. She was beaten up pretty bad, though, but she had regained consciousness after a couple of hours. She was able to see Charlotte nearby and knew that she didn't survive, so that was sad. And then someone ended up finding Nancy there that morning, and she was taken to the hospital. So she's a tough woman, how she survived all that. Her face was all beat up. She lost sight in her left eye. Oh. The man had completely knocked her eye out of its socket. Oh. I don't know if that was from the fall or just from him beating on her. I'm not sure. But she also had pneumonia due to all the water in her lungs. And the doctor said that the fall is probably what pushed most of the water out of her lungs and possibly saved her life. Shit. Then, of course, she had the knife wounds as well. God. Isn't that crazy? So obviously her her family heard the news and they came to the hospital as fast as they could. And a detective from the Birmingham Police Department showed up as well. Now Nancy could barely speak, but to everyone's amazement, she gave the, the detective seven digits. One in three, four, seven, eight, one. I don't know how, especially through all the shit that one she eye. went through. One eye. but from being abducted, raped, tortured, nearly suffocated in the trunk, stabbed, drowned, and thrown down the embankment, she was able to remember the man's li- license plate number. She had been in the hospital for only two hours at that point. She must have seen it as... He was putting them in the trunk, and then she just memorized it from then on, like just said it over and over again in her head or out loud till it stuck, but dang. Or he was abusing them on the back side of the car, maybe when he had her friend, Charlotte. You know, she's probably looking around, being like, what's around me? What? What? Where am I? And then she sees it, and she probably just repeated it to herself until she yeah. learned it. Still, I mean, I'm sure she. But yeah, there's a that, was could concussed, you, all that shit going the on. The hecticness of That's everything. That's just amazing. Yeah, I give her props. That's awesome. I, I couldn't even tell you my license plate number right now. I can't tell you any of our car's <laughs> license plates. I mean, I I have numbers memorized, like obviously my social security number, yeah, like my same. credit card number, bank account. But there's only so many passwords and logins and numbers that I can store in my brain Mm -hmm. so that's just crazy police were able to match the license plate number to to 25 year old richard mark ellard ellard had red hair freckles and blue eyes and they arrested him 36 hours after he dumped the bodies he was charged with the murder of charlotte parks and the attempted murder of nancy Kahn. Nancy had never met Richard Mark Eller before in her life. She had never seen him either. It is very likely that Nancy and Charlotte just happened to walk past his vehicle that night, and he just picked them out as his victims just randomly, probably. Saw two girls, probably a little drunk, you know. Oh, they're looking for a Mm -hmm. good time. Well, come to find out in testimonies later on, Ellard was... Just a woman hater, pretty much. I don't Mm. know what happened to him in the past to make him that way, but he just... Mommy issues. Maybe. Grandmommy issues. (laughs) Something. While Nancy was in the hospital, she suffered a stroke, too. Ugh. So she's just been through hell. 
I'm not exactly sure how much time she spent in the hospital, but after that, I'd ma- I'd imagine that it was a while. Yeah. But about a month after Nancy had recovered and was released from the hospital, Ellard escaped from prison. Jesus. He had mentioned to his cellmate that he planned to go after Nancy through her kids. The difference between the real life and in the movie was kind of significant in this part. In the movie, Ellard sees in the newspaper just a day later that the second victim had survived. The police didn't want word getting out that she survived, but there was a reporter that came to the hospital and was like trying to get in to see Nancy, but the police wouldn't let her. And she argued that women needed to know there was a killer out there targeting, you know, targeting them. So seeing that headline on the newspaper, Ellard knew he had to find Nancy and kill her before police figured out it was him. So he snuck into the hospital, found her, and attempted to suffocate her with a pillow until a nurse came in and ran him off. That was the movie version? Yeah, that's the Hollywood trying to add drama to it kind of thing. In real life, of course, they had arrested him 36 hours after he dumped the body. So, But, I mean, him escaping prison is pretty dramatic already. I don't know why they just didn't use that. Yeah, good point. You know, his plan was... To go after Nancy and finish the job, he was probably just so mad that she survived and that he was caught and he wanted his revenge and knew that he was going to spend his life in prison anyway, so he might as well try to finish the job and he wanted her dead. What was crazy was he ended up turning himself in and he actually confessed to another murder from Georgia and he showed the police where the body was. So in June of the same year, 1971, Ellard was a student at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and 22-year-old Sandra D. Swisher from Gainesville, Florida, was also a student there. She was abducted from campus, raped, stabbed to death with a knife, and then her skeletal remains were found five months later in the wooded area off of his tip. So at least he has an M.O. using the knife. Rape, yeah, abduction. Yeah. She was found in the wooded area in Douglas County, Georgia, which is about an hour and 50-minute drive from Birmingham. Wow. So he took her quite a ways. And that becomes federal when he crossed state lines. Ah, there you go. So in Alabama, he was charged with first-degree murder of Charlotte Parks, and he was charged with assault with intent to murder of Nancy Kahn. Since the incident, there were numerous times when reporters wanted Nancy to share her story with the world. In the hospital, when she could barely talk, and and then back home when she was still getting over what she went through. Yeah. But she just refused. She just wanted it put behind her. I don't blame her. Oh, I don't either. I mean, she didn't want her family dealing with it. I'm sure she had PTSD and seeing, like, flashbacks and stuff. Mm -hmm. Probably can't sleep at night. Yeah. But she was ready to testify at trial and put Ellard away forever. But to her surprise, on May 9th, 1972, Ellard changed his plea from not guilty to guilty. So she didn't even get to testify and let everyone know that he deserved to spend the rest of his life in prison or put to death. She get to do a victim impact statement or address the court? Not at this point. She did okay. not. Later on. But it was thought that Ellard showed 
Placed the body of Sandra D. Swisher and pled guilty in order to avoid the death penalty and to appear cooperative, hoping the judge would go easy on him so that he could, again, try to terrorize Nancy in the future, or at least make her forever worry that he could get out of prison on parole in the future. So he was just trying to freak her out, I think. Well, he probably did a great job doing that. He did. In 1972, the Alabama judge sentenced Richard Mark Eller to life in prison for the death of Charlotte Parks and then 20 years for the attempted murder of Nancy Kahn. Those two sentences would run concurrently. Okay. He was also sent to Georgia to be put on trial in the Superior Court of Douglas County for the murder of Sandra D. Swisher in 1976, so four years later. He also pled guilty in this case. He said that he was high on amphetamines when he abducted Sandra and took her to Douglas County, Georgia. The judge ended up sentencing him in Georgia to serve life in prison, and this would run concurrently with his sentences in Alabama, and he would serve out his time in Alabama. Okay. So with him pleading guilty, he would have the chance at parole in the future, which is just crazy Bullshit. to me. You killed two people, and then you attempted to kill another one, and then you broke out of prison to try and kill her again, and you have a possibility of parole in the future? That's bullshit. Making life very uneasy for Nancy, she experienced a lot of PTSD from that awful day. It was hard on her family, hard on any relationship she was in. She felt like no matter how many times she showered, she couldn't get him off of her. Oh. Just one of those things. And most of all, she felt like she wasn't safe unless Ellard was put to death or had no chance of parole. They moved around so much and tried to make it to where Ellard could never find her or her family. By the fourth grade, Nancy's daughter had been in eight different schools. Oh, my God. Yeah, if that tells you anything, that's... Gosh, she'd probably be like walking down the street and get the creeps from somebody looking at her and be like, oh, we got to move. Well, that... and I feel sorry for her kids. You can't even make friends in that amount of time. You're always no. switching schools and everybody's a stranger to you. That just sucks. To make matters worse, Ellard somehow escaped prison again in 1977. Bro. How? I don't know. It seemed that they transferred him out of maximum security prison and into one of the minimum security prisons. It may have been due to overcrowding in the Alabama prison system. So that's how he escaped, because he was in the minimum prison security. Come to find out, Ellard had been keeping tabs on Nancy while he was in prison, too. He was spotted visiting one of her past addresses to see if she was there. How? How? Do they got phone books in the minimum security prison? Did he have, like, all the, like, newspaper clippings of her posted on his wall or something? God, maybe. Who knows? How? It's just crazy. Luckily, How? she was not, though. What is crazy, though, is that Birmingham police didn't even get notified of his escape until two days afterwards. What the fuck? And the only reason Nancy found out was because one of her friends was dating a police officer. So can you imagine? For two days, he's out there. He could be watching you. You don't know. You had no idea he's even out of prison. So she just had to be freaking the hell out. So when you say minimum security, you mean no security. Right? What? Oh, my gosh. I'm not sure how long he was on the run, but he was caught and sent back to prison. 
but still. Glad somebody did their job. Well, here in a second they didn't. Oh, great. So he became eligible for parole in 1980 after he served an equivalent of 10 years in the Alabama prison system. Is that with him escaping? Yeah. They didn't take that into consideration? Well, he's eligible for parole. No. Okay, I'm sorry. Hold on. Just, just Sorry. Yeah. Let me just sit here and with my mouth wide open yeah, and my eyes it's real crazy. big. He was evaluated by the parole board. Following a hearing on March 2nd, 1981, he somehow was granted parole. Two out of the three members of the parole board voted in his favor. How he was granted parole after murdering two women, attempting murder on another, escaping prison twice now. Twice. In order to finish the job on Nancy is just unbelievable. How how much money is getting paid under the table to these people to... Like, look the other direction. Are they just completely clueless? Were they not given all the facts? I'm like, guessing surely not. not. I mean, like, it just doesn't add up here. It seems like just a complete failure on their part, and then they let da- they let Nancy down and her family down. Did they even care to consider her safety? Yeah, like, what would happen if he had found her and murdered her and her kids? Like, that's on, that's on them. fucking them. I don't care how, like, well-behaved he was in prison or how many programs he was entered into. He did what he did. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't forget about that kind of stuff. Now, this didn't mean he was free, though. He would actually be sent to Georgia to finish out his life sentence there for the murder of Sandra D. Swisher in compliance with a Georgia detainer. But... He would become eligible for parole there in May of 1981, which is literally just two months later. What? He would have the chance to be free two months later. After just ten freaking years. Like, he shouldn't even have a chance. It was just a really scary situation for Nancy because she knew in all of her heart that he would try to come after her again when given the chance. We are moving across country at that point. Oh, yeah. Las Vegas, here we come. (laughs) Well, at this time, she decided this was the time to finally speak up. She tells her story. It's in the papers. It's on the news. And hearing her story, there is such a huge backlash in the community to the verdict, which is very helpful. And if you don't understand completely how parole works, I'll try to explain some of it. The parole board can't just release an inmate on parole as a reward for good conduct or performance of duties that were assigned to them in prison. They can release them only if there is reasonable probability that, if released, that prisoner will live outside the prison without violating the law and the release won't jeopardize the welfare of society. Well, right there, you kind of. Yeah, right. The prisoner's release is prohibited unless they are employed. And they can be arrested and sent to prison again for violations. Even though they're on parole, a a prisoner is still considered in the legal custody of the prison authorities until the expiration of the maximum term in his sentence or legally pardoned. I'm not a professional in law, but if I made a mistake, let me know. But that seems to be the gist of it. So the parole board in Alabama ended up bringing Ellard back 
from Georgia to Alabama for another hearing to determine if his parole should be revoked and rescinded. After Nancy spoke out and there was mm-hmm. all that? Okay. And Yeah, this was on the basis of new information being brought to light. Basically, the board was uninformed on a lot. How? Exactly. How? How did they not know a bunch How? of this stuff? The new information that would be considered at this hearing was, one, his alleged threats against Nancy Kahn and family members, his escape from custody in 1971 and his actions while on the run, his escape from prison again in 1977 and possession of a pistol. What? Yeah, how the hell did he get a pistol? Then the extent of the injuries to Charlotte Parks and the mutilation of her body, the extent of the injuries to Nancy Kahn, the magnitude and extent of protest by citizens against Ellard, the opposition from the Attorney General of Alabama, and the extensive opposition from news and press and radio and television. So an evidentiary hearing was held before the board July 7th, 1982, and on July 15th, 1982, the board ordered the revocation of the certificate of parole. So he's back in. Back in for now. I'm sure a lot had to do with the press more than anything else because everybody wants to protect their image like they're doing their job correctly. But if it comes out like that, for instance, that the parole board just didn't do their job, they're like, oh, we got to make it make us look better so we can get the government dollars to fund this, this and that. Right. But is that legal to take citizens into consideration when revoking a parole like the backlash from the community is that something that you can well they prompted they prompted the media i'm sure is that legal though yeah i would think so are you gonna tell us differently (laughs) because i would think if i got like hundreds of letters from citizens in fear of their life, just because Nancy was his focus doesn't mean he's not going to kill somebody else or kill their kids. So, yeah, I'd been. Oh, I agree, hundred percent. But the law is different. Law isn't it? is the law. The attorney general even came out though. He said, "Look, the the board of parole failed to carry out the responsibility mandated to them." The board should take immediate steps to reconsider and revoke the parole granted to Richard Mark Ellard. So Nancy had the attorney general on her side, at least. So at this point, huge victory for Nancy and her family and for all victims that hadn't had much of a voice in parole hearings up until this point. She was able to speak at the hearing and testify against Ellard to his face. She showed her toughness. She worked with the founders of the Vocal Foundation, which is Victims of Crimes and Leniency. Hmm. It originated after the murder of Quinette Sheehan in 1976. Her mother, Miriam, had to go through the struggle of seven different trials against the three men that killed her daughter. Wow. She had to go through four trials involving the three suspects charged with the murder of her daughter. Then each time the suspects were guilty, but... She had to go through three more new trials because Alabama's death penalty law was ruled unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm sorry. If you killed somebody, we get to kill you. Mm Mm-hmm. 
She said that she wanted a death penalty for all three of them because she learned that a life sentence itself just means nothing because they can get paroled. Mm-hmm. On August 30th, 1982, Ellard actually filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus in the Circuit Court of Montgomery County, Alabama, alleging that these actions of the board in revoking his parole and filing the detainer with the Georgia Penal Authorities were illegal. The trial court found that the board, at the time they granted Ellard's parole, did not have a complete investigative file on him, which was required by statute. A complete investigative file is mandatory. Without that, the parole granted to Ellard was void. On August 30th, 1982, Ellard actually filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus in the Circuit Court of Montgomery County, Alabama, alleging that these actions of the board in revoking his parole and filing the detainer with the Georgia Penal Authorities were illegal. Okay. Now... They didn't let this go through, so he had to file a writ of certiorari. Sounds good to me, love. Yeah, that it's a is struggle the word. toughest word to ever pronounce. Oh, my God. Anyways, he was basically trying to find out if what they did was legal, I guess you could say. The trial court found that the board, at the time they granted Ellard's parole, did not have a complete investigative file on him, which was required by statute. No shit. A complete investigative file is mandatory, and without that, the parole granted to Ellard was void. Ellard, obviously, was going to appeal this, so it was directed to the Supreme Court of Alabama next. Ellard's first contention on appeal was that the trial court erred in upholding the action of the board and revoking his parole. He contends that the parole had been legally granted and conditions weren't violated. But again, it is required for the board to have a complete investigative file on Ellard's social and criminal record before granting him parole. After granting him parole, a lot of information came out thanks in part to Nancy. The protests, new newspaper articles, and, and the attorney general made it known that they didn't quite have the full report on Ellard. So I believe that their revoking of the parole was legal. Yeah, but he's like, it's not my fault they didn't do their homework. Right. I feel like, yeah, they could have found this information out for, for the initial parole hearing. Yeah. If, if they would have just done their due diligence there. There was a psychological report on Ellard in the files of the State Department of Corrections that they probably could have gotten their hands on and taken a look at, and that probably would have helped them change their minds. I don't know why they didn't do that. Right, it's like right there in the yeah, prison. Yeah, and then I don't, I don't know how they didn't take into account his escapes from prison twice. Like, they had to have known that happened. Right, I feel Surely. like they would have had, like, a printout of his, like, page in prison and be like, escaped, escaped, or something, you, you like would, a big stamp yeah, on it. You would think. Back in custody I stamp mean, or something. Now, Ellard's second contention of, on appeal was that the revocation of his parole violated his rights to equal protection and due process under the Constitution of Alabama and the 14th Amendment. This case is special because Ellard wasn't actually released into society. He was granted parole from one state in order to be sent to another state to carry out his sentence there. Parole to detainer, that's what this is. 
and it was partially an effort to reduce overcrowding in the Alabama prisons. In this instance, Ellen was given a conditional transfer and nothing more. So this allows the board to release a prisoner to another state for the purpose of serving a sentence in that state. So basically, okay. he was prisoner of both Alabama and Georgia. Well, even so, if it was like a issue of overcrowding, even though they brought him back, they could have just been like, listen, you're already in Georgia. We're just going to move your sentencing to the prison there. He could have just stayed in Georgia and ran the rest of it out. Yeah, but for his contention that they violated his rights to equal protection, it doesn't fit into this category of parolee because he's not being set free. So this is a whole different circumstance. But then Eller contended that he was denied due process rights. Due process clause applies when a person is deprived of life, liberty, and property. Again, the nature of his confinement remained the same. He was serving his Alabama and Georgia sentences concurrently in Alabama before the board's actions. Then after he was serving all his sentences concurrently in Georgia. So, he wasn't denied due process. I I know it's complicated. <laughs> I just want to say I think he should be grateful he got any process because I would have just thrown his ass in the I'm, ringer for mm-hmm. what he did. He's lucky he's got some rights. Yeah. Don't let me be in charge. What if that was a thing? I was just thinking that, like, whatever you did is what your punishment is. So what if he was tortured, raped, and stabbed for the things that he... Oh, shit. Man, could you imagine the world if we were like that? I think a lot of people would do less crimes knowing that that crime would be committed to them. Well, unfortunately, it was taken to the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th circuit in 1991 and it ended up being reversed so his parole was granted and he would serve his life sentence in georgia so at least he's not going free but still they said he won practically though yeah in Alabama. exactly like that's what i was talking about earlier like they all this fine print bullshit just do what's right you know mm-hmm. he deserves to have his parole revoked Right. It's like they don't give two shits about victims. Yeah. Can y'all just think about Nancy in this situation and not just, ugh. ugh. They want to look good. Yeah. Politics, man. It's mm -hmm. all politics. A lot of that stuff is just completely over my head, though. Like, I would have expected the U.S. Court of Appeals to side with the Alabama Court of Appeals. And the Attorney General and all those. Yeah, but maybe maybe I'm just biased. Yeah. Well, yeah, most definitely. I am too, obviously. I want him dead. Yeah, I just know that this would have never happened if the parole board would have just got it right in the beginning. Correct. But last I saw, he was serving out his life sentence at Baldwin State Prison in Georgia. I'd imagine that once the Georgia parole board had all the evidence and information about Ellard, that this mistake won't happen again. Right. Surely not. They can't be that stupid. As for Nancy, she actually became an advocate for other victims. She taught others that it was okay to tell their story. Victims deserve a voice. The justice system needs balance. She received a large number of awards, certificates, and plaques. She made appearances on The Oprah Winfrey Show twice. Her story appeared in Woman's Day and Reader's Digest. Then, of course, she met with a movie producer in Los Angeles, and they made the movie about her. 
Wait, she was a part of that, and they changed so much. Uh, yeah, that's what happens a lot, though. I wonder like, if that was get her a complete doing, say. or if that was just them taking a creative turn. Well, the the actress that played Nancy, you know, they said that she lost sight in her eye, but like throughout the whole movie, it, it didn't look like she had lost sight in her, her eye. eye. Yeah. <laughs> No eye patch, no nothing. Like she was just blinking fine and moving that eye and everything. So I don't know. Nancy ended up serving on the second congressional district. She worked as a legal secretary in Birmingham before working in the Jefferson County District Attorney's Office as the victim service officer in 1985. Very cool. She moved to Montgomery, Alabama to serve as the state victim service officer for the Attorney General. Siegelman at the time. She worked there from 1988 till 1999, and then she was transferred to the Board of Pardons and Paroles as a victim service officer. Dang. Yeah. Moving up in the world. Good for her. Uh-huh. Then she was appointed to serve on the board by Governor Siegelman. So she went from helping to fight for the rights of victims to have a say at parole hearings to actually being on the board herself. That's wonderful. And in 1993, Nancy ended up marrying James McCreary. So she was, for 28 years, she was a widow, and she was able to find the love of her life. She became a grandmother, and she lived until the age of 77. She passed away in April of 2017. Wow. Yeah. Fairly recently. Nancy stopped being the victim, and she took control of her life, and she really did a lot of good. No doubt that her family was so proud of her. And that's the story of Nancy Kahn. That's awesome for her. I bet she does all the homework that's needed before she goes into a parole hearing. Yeah, right? Man. I'm proud that she but that's took she... it and made something out of it. Instead of people who want to play the victim card... Poor me, poor me. She actually is doing something or was doing something about it in her lifetime. I feel like people that are in those positions should feel some kind of victimization in their life to know the struggles like she did to that way that they're aware yeah. of victims and know like they're suffering and stuff. That's like a lot of rehabs. Workers at rehabs like counselors have mm-hmm. been through the ringer like some people just don't get it if they right. hadn't been in their shoes like that. Wow. And uh, well, I'm glad that tool bag's still riding out his sentence and not getting out. Because, th- I mean, think about it. If she, you know, obviously she's already passed. But think of, like, if she was alive and he was up for parole in Georgia, you know she'd be like, oh, listen, <laughs> I'm on the board now. I was his victim. Man. She moves to Georgia to be on that parole. Right, board. just to like look at him in the face and be like, listen, nope, motherfucker. You ain't you going nowhere. Nope. I mm-hmm. wish I wish she would have outlived him though. Yeah, me too. That would have been bittersweet mm-hmm. ending. Spit on his grave. Mm-hmm. Throw him in the incinerator. <laughs> Man, I could go on for days. That just makes me so irritated that they God, do your homework. That's what your job is to That's do. That's literally your job. Ugh. Well, at least he's got something coming to him. And she turned her life around for the better, and then she 
got remarried and lived a full life, so we can only hope for that for other victims in the world. Amen to that. Thank you for that. That was a good one today. That wasn't like a sad, depressing one. That's You're welcome. A, that was a good ending. Thank you for the recommendation, Christy. Yes, thank you, Christy. I'm sorry your dad got called out like that. Dude, that's wild. That is crazy. I can just imagine like all the police surrounding him like, bro, it's not me, Didn't, I swear. Is, is she the one that you were going back and forth with that's been involved with yes. too many true crime instances? Yeah, she's got a few other ones that we might have to look into. Dude, I'm down. We can do the Christy Chronicles. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> If you guys have enjoyed this episode and some of our others, please go follow us on all platforms, the Caught Red Podcast, P-A-W-D, and give us a liking and review us and give us some star ratings, preferably all of the stars. That way other people can find us and listen to us and then they get to see pictures of our doggos and maybe a cat on occasion. You get a star. You, you get, get a, a star. star. I'll get a star. But until next time, stay local, shop local, murder local.